ceremonies are particular rituals that people go through to change their status. Uh, for example, in a wedding ceremony, bride and groom turn from being singles to being husband and wife, to be married people. And this is typically done through wearing particular clothes on that occasion, going through perhaps an exchange of rings and vows, and perhaps having a minister pronounce them as husband and wife. Same thing for a graduation ceremony. Here, students turn from being candidates to being graduates. Again, you have to wear special clothes for this event. And when you show up, you walk down that platform and you move that tassel from one side to another. You get your diploma and it says you are now a graduate. In our passage this morning in Exodus 29, we are given instructions for a different kind of ceremony. A ceremony that turns people into priests. A ceremony that turns people into priests. They too have to wear special clothing. And they also have to go through a certain number of steps. Um, purification rites and sacrifices in order to be consecrated or set aside or ordained as priests. Now, this morning's passage in Exodus 29 is another one of our long Exodus passages. And uh, my, my children have missed a couple of my recent sermons, and they said, and I told them, this morning's going to be a long sermon. And they said, yes. Oh, actually, only one daughter said, yes, we get to hear more of Daddy. Um, and she's my number one fan. I'm glad somebody's excited for these long passages. Uh, but hopefully these long and seemingly detailed and boring passages, we will still find that God's Word is living and active and profitable for us today. So as we've done previously in our long passages in Exodus, we're going to just make our way through the text. And we're going to stop at certain points, and I'm just going to make a few comments and hopefully wrap up everything together for us at the very end. So... Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 29, and if you don't have your Bibles with you, you can grab a Black Pew Bible in front of you, and you can find it on page 69 of your Black Pew Bibles. Follow along with me as I read from God's Word. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 in the beginning. Now this is what you shall do to them, meaning Aaron and his sons, to consecrate them, consecrate meaning to set apart, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. So what we see in the very opening kind of verses is that when we're preparing for this very special ceremony, get your stuff together. Bring all the ingredients together. You know, whatever it takes to make the pie, you know, you get those ingredients. And whatever it takes, these are the ingredients to make people into priests. You need three animals for sacrifice, and you need three wheat items, uh, whether that's bread or cakes or wafers. Now, verses 4 through 9, we 
shows us the first major portion of the ceremony, which is a purification uh, uh, section, uh, purification portion to purify these priests. Verse 4, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain, or meaning fill or publicly install, Aaron and his sons. Now before Aaron and his sons, called by God to be priests, can be actually become priests, they first need to be washed. We see that there. They need to first be washed. Now, why would they need to be washed? Certainly it's because they're in the desert, they're probably smelly and stinky, and they could use a bath. But symbolically, it meant a lot more. It represented the removal of the uncleanness caused by sin. Then, not only are they to wash, they're to get dressed. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks back, about the high priest's clothes, but there's an elaborate getup that they have to wear for the high priest. He has a breastplate, a breastpiece, I'm sorry, of 12 stones and with each of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel engraved, engraved on them. Beneath that, he would wear an ephod, kind of like an apron. Beneath that, he would wear a, a blue robe with hemmed at the very bottom with golden bells and, and pomegranates. And then on top of that, as an accessory, he got a hat. He got a turban with a gold piece that says, Holy to the Lord, on it. The clothes tell us that this priest is to be a holy man doing holy work in a holy place, serving a holy God. Washed, dressed, and then anointed with oil. We see that they're anointed with oil. This is an act symbolizing that this person is now God's choice, set apart by God for this special task. So if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that kings and prophets were anointed with oil, signifying their special uh, uh, calling from God. So these priests washed, dressed, and anointed. But not only are they to get purified, they're also to bring these sacrifices, which is what is the next major section that we see here with our passage. There's three sacrifices. Look at verses 10 through 14. Then you shall bring the bowl before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bowl. Then you shall kill the bowl before the Lord and the entrance of the tent of meeting. You shall take part of the blood of the bowl and put it on the horns of the altar with your fingers. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bowl and its skin and its dung you shall burn, outside, burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So the first offering for these priests is what is called a sin offering. You would take the bowl and you will lay your hands on the bowl. Now, why are you laying your hands on the bowl? It is a, it's symbolic saying, it is a dramatic almost declaration saying that the priest 
is this animal. And that this animal is taking his place in the ceremony. In other words, as the priests watched these bowls being cut up, drained of blood, burned on the altar, the priest would watch and say, that's what should, be, have, been, that's what should have happened to me. And this was a sin offering meant to cleanse the altar, the altar uh, which we talked about a couple weeks back. Now, if you skip down to verses 36 and 37, it says that the sin offering is to make atonement for the altar where they burn all the sacrifices. And it's why the blood in verse 12 in, our, in, our, in chapter 29 says is placed on the horns of the altar. Why? It's almost as if the blood is disinfecting the altar. Now, you should know that there are five central sacrifices for the Israelite. And the sin offering is one of those sacrifices. And the sin offering is made for the purification of a tabernacle and the altar and, the, and its furniture, the furniture inside the tabernacle. Now, you think to yourself, why would the altar need to be purified, this inanimate object? Because sin pollutes God was going to make his dwelling place among the people at the tabernacle. He's saying, I, my presence is here in the tabernacle. And by the very presence of the priests, they have already defiled the furniture items of the tabernacle. It sounds strange to us, but a physical altar needed cleansing because sin is kind of like uranium. You know, you get, you don't want it lying around because just by its presence, it is harmful. It infects everything it comes near. And sin, in the same way, strains our ability to come into God's presence. And so these sinful priests, by their very presence, defiled the, author, uh, the, the altar, and so it needed to be purified by sacrifice. Then there's the second sacrifice, the burnt offering in verses 15 through 18. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram and shall, and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. So similar to the first sacrifice, Hands are being placed upon this sacrifice here for the burnt offering. Whereas the sin offering is for disinfecting the altar, the burnt offering is for the sins of the priest himself. This is an admission that the priest is guilty of sin. The priest himself needs this substitute in his place, and the whole animal is burned up, showing the complete dedication complete consecration of these priests unto the Lord. And now we get to the third sacrifice, which is our longest section of our passage this morning. So you're going to need your thinking caps on just to follow along because we're going to take it from 19 all the way down to verse 34. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay hands on the head of this ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and the tips of the right 
ears of his sons and the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet. Great toes. And throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his son and sons and his son's garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his son's garments with him. You shall also take the fat, which in ancient Near East is like the best part of the animal, just wanting to let you know. You take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron. So now Aaron's getting involved. And wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. So the best parts are offered up to God. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the, bre- the, the breast of the wave offering that is waved in the thigh of the breast of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination, from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from the peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. So in other words, the clothes of Aaron, his high priest outfit, they're, kind of, they're going to be hand-me-downs. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. He shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in the holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination of the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. All right. That's the longest part, the ram of ordination. By this time, blood is everywhere. You notice they put the offering in the priest's hands, and they're to wave it before the Lord. And this is probably a motion that's kind of like back and forth, back and forth to the altar. Kind of perhaps symbolizing this is something that's given to God and something that God gives to them because this is a very different kind of offering. Instead of everything being burned up, they actually get to eat parts of it. So they get some barbecue as well. They get to have a a meal at the end. Usually it's... uh, uh, the, the sacrifice is completely burnt up, but this time you can bring out the bread. And it's a celebratory feast signifying communion with God, fellowship with God. And you notice in verse 20 that in the ordination offering, blood is placed on the ear, right earlobe and then the thumb and the great toe, which is the big toe on your foot. And uh, it indicated that the priests most likely are completely consecrated to God, separated, set out for God. And probably indicates that they're going to hear the word of the Lord, that they're going to do the works of the work 
uh, uh, that the Lord has them for them to do, and for them to walk in the path that the Lord would have them walk. They're to be com completely consecrated to the task. And then we notice in verses 35 to 37, this is a seven-day service. It says, you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I've commanded you through seven days shall you ordain them. Every day you offer a bowl as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it, anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Seven day service. You would think that this one day would be good enough Seven days. Washing, purifying, dressing, anointing, sacrifice upon sacrifice, everything. Now, perhaps not every element is repeated, but certainly a bowl is offered for seven days straight. Every day, sin offering. Every day, sprinkling with blood. Every day, atonement is necessary. Every day, purifying is necessary. Now, verse 37 might be a little confusing, so I'll just make a quick note about that. It says, whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Uh, this isn't saying that holiness is somehow transferable. Uh, rather, most likely, this, what it's uh, saying is that whatever touches the altar must be holy. Okay? So finally, we look at verses 38 through 46. And this speaks not so much as to what the what is the ordination for the priest, but the duty of the priests. Now, this is what you shall do in verse 38. You shall offer on the altar two lambs, a year old, uh, a year old day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of hen of beaten oil and a fourth of hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering and in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Essentially, once these priests are ordained, they're going to help Israel in their worship practices because they need to offer a sacrifice morning and evening. And so they're going to be the ones helping with this. And the purpose of everything here that we've seen Everything about the tabernacle, everything about the clothing of the priests, everything about ordaining these priests so that they can serve the people of Israel, what's it for? It's so that God would dwell with his people. Isn't that the repeated word? I'm going to meet with them, speak with them, dwell with them. No other nation on earth will have this privilege and blessing. God has revealed himself in Exodus. The God who makes himself known. How? As creator. As redeemer. He's already demonstrated that in Exodus. And now he's demonstrating, I am the God that dwells with his people. I am not a faraway God. But a God who invites 
my people to draw near to me. So what does this complicated ordination ceremony teach us? Well, first, the consecration of Aaron and his sons teach us the universality. I know that's a mouthful. Probably could have picked another word. But the universality of sin. Think about the instructions for the ceremony. There's a washing, consecration with oil, sin offering, burnt offering, ordination offering. Altars needed purifying. People needed purifying. And this whole ordeal is literally washed in blood, and it's stretched out for an entire week. Washing, robing, sacrifice. And do you see the main point being reiterated over and over again to these priests, these people made to be priests? What is it saying? Yes, they are ministers of God, but they first need to be ministered by God. It was as sinners that they entered into their priestly office. And it was as sinners that they ministered to sinners. The priests first and foremost foremost, were men who sinned and needed atonement, who needed purifying, who needed cleansing. And to think they were reminded of this. I mean, when we were sent out in seminary, It was one day, one evening. But this is day after day after day. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, over and over again saying, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. When I graduated from seminary 16 years ago, I remember at the very end, our class was called to the foot of the stage. And there we all kneeled. And my favorite professors were there with me, Dr. Buznitz. Dr. Barrick, uh, Steve Lawson was there. They were laying hands on us, and they prayed over us. And I have actually an illustration of it in my office because that was the moment when my seminary said, these men here are going to be sent out all over the world to be pastors in churches. It was very moving. But imagine... How it would have felt if instead Dr. Barrett came forward, he laid his hands on me and said, Stephen is sinful, we better pray for him. And then Dr. Buznitz comes along and he says, I've known Stephen for these past three years and he's very sinful, let's pray for him. And round and round the professors go, And then Steve Lawson comes up and he says, does anyone else think Stephen's sinful? And he says this to the congregation, come up, let's pray for him. And this would happen, imagine if this happened day after day after day after day. That's what it was going to be like for these priests. Every washing, every sacrifice. It tells them they're no better than anybody else. These priests are sinners who need a savior. That is a powerful lesson for all of us, especially those who are in formal ministry. As much as we delight in being shepherds, called as shepherds over God's flock, as much as we might glory in that, we must remember that we are sheep. My first and foremost identity is that of a sinner saved by grace. 
Now, I know some people object to such an angular identification. We should get over such negative speech, such triggering speech, such guilt-laden speech. But the, but the Apostle Paul never got over it. He said in 1 Timothy, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's how Paul thought of himself. So as much as I hope you love and look up to your leaders, and I really do hope that you do that, as much as you admire Christian authors, and I hope you do, or speakers or theologians, they are still sinful. Your pastors are frail. And so what do we need from you? We need your prayers. I'm so thankful for our pastor's appreciation, the great gift that you give us to pray for us. That's what we need. But it's not just pastors. Sin is universal. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe mom is sinful? Or our cute daughter is just so cute, but sinful? John Calvin was sinful. I don't know if you care about that, but you're like, of course. Jackie Hill Perry is sinful. Sin is, one of, is the one disease we all share, and Christian brothers and sisters, beloved, you must never forget that you are a sinner saved by grace. The truth of the universality of sin helps us to treat people with dignity and rightly calibrate our expectations. You know, I've been reading this book called Generations. My wife says it's my second Bible because I enjoy it so much. But it's this book about Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, boomers. And I didn't even know OK Boomer was a phrase until I read that book. And uh, Dr. Jean Twenge analyzes these different generations. And she says, our generation is filled with pessimism. Disappointed with work. Hopeless about corrupt politicians. Deconstructing from religion because of the hypocrisy seen in leaders. But Christian, we should not be surprised at the universality of sin in every sphere of this world. We should not be disillusioned when leaders prove flawed. Certainly, we should support them whenever we can, seek to correct the faults where possible, leave the rest to God, all while recognizing that terrible potential failures are possible and are possible within us as well. We must never forget that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Second, Second lesson we see from this process in this ordination, it shows our need for holiness. Not just the universality of sin, but the need for holiness. To be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to be a part of the tribe of Levi. And you had to be holy. You had to be washed. You had to be purified before you even started trying to help other people. And it wasn't just the priests that needed to be holy. All of Israel needed to be holy because they were called, back in chapter 19, what? A royal priesthood. And did you know that the New Testament also talks about us being 
priests. Peter calls us a chosen race in 1 Peter 2, 9. A chosen race, a royal priesthood. So Paul writes letters to Rome, Corinth, and Philippi. And how does he address all these letters? He calls them what? To the saints. To the consecrated ones. The set-apart ones. Saints. Redeemer. You are saints. You are a royal priesthood. And whether you are in formal ministry or not, this is what the people who look to you, who you minister to, need from you as well. Uh, these days, we may feel that in order to minister to others, we must have a better understanding of our culture. That we need to ingratiate ourselves to others more to better contextualize. No, what this passage says is your need for holiness. We must hear this in our present age, that mothers, what your children need from you is not just be better at planning all the extracurricular activities, but your heart of patient holiness and gentleness. Husbands, your wives don't need you to get a raise. What they need from you is that you would be a man of integrity, pure, a man of your word. The people at work or school, they need you to speak the truth in love. They need you to contend for the faith, to be marked out by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, all those things of the fruit of the Spirit. They don't need to see you being strong. They need to see your hope, even in your, all your weaknesses. And that's what you need from me. I know you might think what we need from you is more dynamic preaching skills, more creativity, please. Stop reading every verse in the Bible. Robert Murray McShane, the famous 19th century Scottish Presbyterian, he wrote, the greatest need of my people is my holiness. I think that's right. Pray that I would be marked out by the fruit of the Spirit. Pray that I would be a man that's loving and courageous and forgiving. What the people need around you most is that you are an individual of character with uncommon conviction and kindness marked out by integrity and to be holy as God is holy. And some of you are doing a good job at that. Some of you are. But press on. Keep going. That's what they need. That's what this world needs. Third and lastly, the ordination of the high priest shows us our need for a better high priest. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we've talked about the universality of sin. I think if you just stop and take a moment and be honest with yourself, you would say, yes, I, the world is broken. I not only know it, I feel it. And yes, I understand that maybe what the world needs from me most is holiness. And I need to be holy, but I'm not. And the answer isn't that we would have these Old Testament priests again. 
but the answer is Jesus. Think about the ceremony and its different parts, and think about Jesus. Priests needed to be washed and anointed. Jesus was washed in the Jordan River. He was anointed not with oil, but the Holy Spirit, publicly approved by God at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was a priest in the service of his heavenly Father, but this was a different priest. Jesus is the great high priest that does not bring lambs to be slaughtered, but himself is the slaughtered lamb. Christ is the great high priest, consecrated, set apart to do what Aaron and his sons could never fully accomplish. Turn with me to one passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. If you're using those Black Pew Bibles, that's page 1004. But you see in Hebrews 7 that the Mosaic system was an imperfect system, not because the system was broken, but because the people were broken. Look at chapter 7, Hebrews 7, verse 11. Follow along. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? Then turn to verse uh, 23. Turn to verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God and through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, these priests in the Old Testament were blemished priests frail priests, impure. And if you had a good one, guess what would happen? He would die. And then you wouldn't need another and another and another. And you better hope the next one is a good one, but not so with Jesus because Jesus is unlike any other priest. Jesus was broken. I mean, Jesus was blameless and pure and unblemished in himself. While the priest was broken and sinful. A priest would die, but Jesus would die only to rise again, to be seated at the right hand of God and make intercession for us. A priest would, not, would need to make repeated sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice was permanent and no longer needs to be, be repeated. That's what we see in verse 26 of Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Do you see that there? The work of the priesthood is finished if we are in this high priest. Jesus died as our great high priest that we might be reconciled, that we might be consecrated, set apart, declared holy before God. Jesus died so that we might be washed. Jesus died that we might be robed in his righteousness. Jesus died that we might be anointed by the Spirit. Jesus died that we might be cleansed by the sprinkling of blood. He is that perfect substitute. He is that sacrifice in our place to make atonement for our sins and to receive forgiveness 
to finally deal with the problem of sin, all we have to do is lay our hands on him by faith. Because Christ is our perfect substitute and our great high priest. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we once again are thankful for your word and, and all that it says. And we know that there is grace beyond measure that is found in Christ. That there is, there can be, we recognize even as Christians that we don't have perfect obedience, but we can have true obedience and true holiness because of Christ. And so, God, we ask that you would make us as a church to be an uncommon people, set apart and consecrated for the work that you have for us, that Jesus would be exalted, that your name would be made known to all this world. Oh, Lord, we plead for you to help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing that last song in response. Thank you.